Welcome to Sundial on WLRN during our fall membership drive. I'm Carlos Frias. We're bringing you some of our best conversations. When Ricky Martin was living La Vida Loca, Leila Cobo was there. She saw Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine do the conga. She watched Shakira whenever, wherever, and she knows all about what Bad Bunny put his poor Titi through. Leila is the vice president of Latin music at Billboard. She's been watching Latin stars break into the U.S. market for more than two decades. First as a music critic, she went from Los Angeles to the epicenter of the Latin music world, Miami. It's close to her home country of Colombia, where she grew up a classical pianist. She went inside the world of chart-topping Latin music at Billboard. She tells the stories of Spanish-language musicians taking off in the U.S. market to become global icons. Leila leads the annual Billboard Latin Music Week conference in Miami and the Billboard Latin Awards. She's written books on the subject, including bios of Latin stars like Jenny Rivera. And in her latest book, Decoding Despacito, she traces the explosion of some of Latin pop's biggest hits. We spoke with Leila back in June. We're bringing back this conversation as Billboard Latin Music Week is underway in Miami. Wow, what an intro. It started with Ricky Martin, and I thought I did see Ricky Martin live La Vida Loca at the Miami Arena. What was that like? It was great. I um, I was at the Miami Herald, and the day before, or at some point, he had a record signing when there were still record stores in Miami Beach, which was insane because the guy was blowing up, and there were lines and lines of people. And at the arena, I went to review the show, and the very first number was Live in La Vida Loca. And the way it started was there was like a pink convertible, and Ricky came out on top of the convertible. Onto the stage, in the convertible. Onto the stage, and then from the in the middle of the song, from the trunk pops open, and this like beautiful dancer steps up. It was super exciting, I have to say. I was going to say there's, uh, you know, that you put us in a time, right, where we have a real explosion of Latin music. Like people, it's hard to think back now because like when you have a bad money, it becomes so mainstream. Like we're hearing it on the radio and it wasn't always like that. You know, it took a a career, careers to, you know, like almost a generation to get to that point. And you've been covering for more than 20 years, you know, which I think is you have a real perspective on it, so I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so we had a lot of choices about which songs to play in that intro, and I was like, we purposely left out La Macarena because I was like, I cannot have that earworm. <laughs> Is there an earworm for you in those songs that you're like, once you hear that song, you're going to be singing that for the next few days? Living la, living la Vida Loca is such a song. Oh, it, it was a apologies. great song. <laughs> no, no, but it's they all are. They all are. And, and Decoding Despacito, I, 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 like, I look at 50 years of them. Right. Uh, you dedicate a whole chapter to that song. I did, and to La Macarena, too. I know, I know, I know. Don't tell me you didn't dance. Like my, everybody has danced it. I, don't I didn't it. dance to it. Okay. I'm saying that if I hear it, I will be singing it for the next three weeks. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am curious, you know, because like I said, we are, it's such a mainstream thing that like Bad Bunny doesn't sing in English on purpose. You know, like that's, and he's a global icon. He's an icon in Miami. I mean, he's an icon in the United States, but I, I'm curious about the beginning, and that's why I like I was thinking of Gloria Stefan and Conga, and like how it had to get to this point, right? Um, so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about what it was like watching this go from 
a niche thing. In other words, mm-hmm. like a, a song breaks in and it's niche and it's kind of like La Macarena to then becoming this, this entire industry, you know? It's, I think it's fascinating because I would say that up until even two years ago, three mm. years ago, if you went outside Miami, because Miami is a Latin city, right? right. So it's not a, not comparable to other cities in the United States. But when you try to tell people that weren't Latin, that weren't here, that this was important, that it was a big deal, it was really an uphill battle. Like people wouldn't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> you would be like, no, no, eh, this guy played an arena and it's Vicente Fernandez and there were 15,000 people and you might as well be talking in Greek you know people just did not buy into it unless they were part of the Latin environment so it was it was really I think very difficult especially because you could see the demographic of the country changing Mm. you could see Spanish being spoken more and more and yet the impact of the music was really I think very ignored for a long time until it kind of hit everybody in the face and then you couldn't ignore it anymore. Of course, there are cycles, no? Right. Like Ricky Martin, Shakira, eh, Gloria Stefan, a little before that. There are cycles where there's a big Latin hit and then suddenly everyone is aware. But by and large, in between those big hits, it was, I think it was difficult for the mainstream, for the general population to accept that this music was kind of here and that it was successful and it did well and there was a circuit. Only now do I really see a change. I would say since Despacito. Oh, interesting. Because like you said, there's a little bit of a desert between the big hits and then uh, maybe everybody rushes out to sign, the, <laughs> the big music companies rush out to sign a couple artists, but then everything cools off. But, but so Despacito, something, something unlocked? Despacito is something big unlocked here in the States and, and everywhere because Despacito became a really huge global hit. The video, the video was, it still is the most viewed video on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. The most viewed music video. And then here in the States, after they did the remix with Justin Bieber, it reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And not to say that the bill, well, no, the Billboard Hot 100 is the barometer for hits in this country. And it was the first time that a song that was predominantly in Spanish hit number one since Macarena. Right. Wow. I, it's funny. I was, in, I was in Belgium, in Brussels, walking through a plaza, and there was a quartet, a string quartet playing Despacito. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> like it lends itself to all kinds of formats. Really, honestly, mm-hmm. it really. It, what do you think it was about that specific song? I mean, obviously, you titled your book. But what was it about that song? <laughs> I mean, is there a musically thing that our our brains vibrated all in the same way? That just, or or, what, or did we hit a critical mass in in accepting Latin music beyond a niche? I think it was a bunch of things. I think it starts with the song. The song is really a great song. That little chorus is great. You know, despacito. It's so easy to sing back. Like, it doesn't matter what language you sing, you speak, you can sing it. And then you had streaming. We didn't have streaming before. So... So suddenly you have people who don't, who are all over the world and they look up the video and the video is great and they can watch it on YouTube and all of that starts aggregating because before, and here in the States especially, if you wanted to buy music in Spanish, you had to go to a store and buy it or you had to hear it on the radio. So you had to wait for someone. There was a middleman. 
right? For that music to get to you, you had yes. to go somewhere to get that music versus popping in your AirPods, right? Exactly. And I think people forget how hard that was. I don't know if you recall, you would go yes, to... Yes, I recall. To Tower <laughs> I Records. I am old. I, re- I remember. And yeah, and, and Latin was just such a little piece. It was such a little piece. In like a little you couldn't section, compete. And even in Miami, a separate section in the in the record store, folks, there were stores where you went into the store and the music was sold only there. Yeah. And, and in once and everything was broken up by section, uh, and then you would you would go find your music. I mean, uh, you know, go to Sweat Records. I mean, that's. <laughs> Go do that anyway, but also streaming has, has changed the game. And you had to listen to the music on the radio, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Miami has a bunch of Latin radio stations. And tape it, right? You put your tape deck in yeah. and record the song when it comes on and hope the DJ doesn't talk over it. Exactly. And then good luck going to, I don't know, Kansas and finding a station that plays music in Spanish. So really the distribution of the music was super limited. And uh, so... It couldn't really flourish, but it you know it starts to build. It's not one thing or another. I think it's a confluence of things, and then you finally have kind of the the groundwork laid down, and then a song like Despacito comes, and people go nuts with it. But it was a great song. Right. Well, you mentioned Miami is a city, que, you know, habla bad bunny, right? <laughs> and so a song like that is easily you know uh, understood here. I'm curious. Talk to me about Miami's role because you said Miami is it does have this special aspect where it became I guess like a, a really a launching pad for a lot of careers and a lot of Latin crossover careers, right? It did, but I, I um Miami I think is a dichotomy because on the one hand you had a lot of the industry like the Latin multinationals were here. Mm. Um, and it's kind of the, the crossroads of the Americas, right? Because you, you, you come from South America, you come here, you come from Spain. This is kind of the first port of entry. So a lot of things happen here. That was Leila Cobo. She's the vice president of Billboard Latin and one of the biggest authorities in Latin music. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Leila during the annual Billboard Latin Music Week in Miami. If you like interviews like this, remember... Your contributions to public radio help us make your favorite shows, like Sundial. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our fall membership drive. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's get back to our conversation with Leila Cobo. She's the vice president of Billboard Latin and one of the biggest authorities in Latin music. We spoke to her in June, and we're bringing back the conversation as Billboard Latin Music Week returns to Miami. She made a career in the pop music scene, but she tells us about getting her start in classical music. Music to you came in a different way, right? You were a, you were a classical pianist. <laughs> I was. So talk to me about how music made its way into your home as a kid. We I grew up in Colombia, in Cali, which is uh, Colombia's third city. And uh, it's, it's funny because Cali is very musical, but it's one of those things that you don't even think about until you're out of there. What do you mean? In what ways is, is it musical? It's a very, well, I think all Latin American cities tend to be very loud, right? All the big cities are loud and music is always playing. And Cali is a hot city temperature-wise. So a lot of open windows, kind of like Miami in that sense. Interesting. So you drive and you hear music all the time. And it's also known as the capital of salsa, la capital de la salsa. And salsa is a big deal in Cali. We have a big fair in December. And so music is very much a part of the city's identity. What are, what are some of those musical sounds that remind you of your childhood? Like if you hear a song on, a radio, on the radio, what are, what are the sounds of that childhood? 
Oh my God, anything that's salsa and mm-hmm. Cali, Cuban salsa, because my dad was a big, big, big fan of Cuban salsa. Mm. And then Colombian salsa, and they're all Cali bands. Eh, Grupo Nietzsche, Cali Pachanguero, Guayacan. Eh, so all those bands from Cali. And then in my house, my mom, she's still alive. She was an amateur pianist, but a very good one. So the in, at home, we had two pianos, actually. We had like wow. a little upright that was in the playroom, and that's where you played when you were starting to learn. And then you could graduate to the grand piano, which was upstairs. That is so funny. You had your own. <laughs> you had your own uh, uh, minor league music scene to, yes, to move we up. Did. That is amazing. And everybody had to take lessons. And my brother actually is a classical guitarist. He went for classical guitar, and uh, so music was very present in the house. So everybody, so everybody played music in your home. Everybody played music. We we went to see the orchestra every week. But we also danced, you know, my dad was a big dancer, so it was it was a nice mix of uh, classical music, but also popular music. So I think that's, I think that kind of informed my taste. I'm very open-minded with music. Oh, so so it wasn't just that you were focusing on classical music, it was an avenue to, to think about music in general. I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, in retrospect, mm-hmm. and, and I've done the analysis, Carlos, recently, because I never did until, I think, until I wrote decoding this pasito but very much so i mean i i did classical music since i was very little i went to the conservatory in cali then i went to music school in new york so i did that whole six hours a day of practicing so you came to new york to study music what was that like uh, to tell your folks that you were going to leave the country to go study music oh well they made me wait Right, because I I graduated from high school. I was 16 when I graduated from high school. So my dad said, I'm not sending you to the States to study. I'm going to send a 16-year-old to New York to live alone. He's like, no way, no way. So I went first to study journalism in in, uh, Bogota. Oh, wow. And at the same time, I continued, you know, taking my piano classes. I performed a lot. And then uh, when I was 20, I told my dad, okay, can I go now? And, uh, And I went to New York to Manhattan School of Music, which was great. Was there a period where then you were, that was your job? You were a, a concert pianist type of thing? Like There was a period when that was my job. I cannot tell you that I made a living out of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that implies being able to pay all your bills, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I was getting paid, yeah. but I was living at home. And, uh, and while I was in New York, I thought, oh, this is not going to, you know, I don't see a big future here. I'm going to end up being a, a piano teacher. People, it's you know you go to New York. Everyone is really good. Oh, interesting. And then you suddenly had that, you, you go had that that awakening, right? Yeah, and and it's classical piano, and I think classical music is a little bit like sports, right? Even if you're put in all the time, there comes a point where there's a tiny group of people who are really very good, and right. they're better than you. Right. And oh, that's, a, that's such a good analogy, yeah. And I did have that epiphany. I thought, okay, well, I was really good in Colombia, and here I'm good. It wasn't that I was bad. I was in Manhattan School of Music. I couldn't suck. Right. But um, I'm not going to make a living playing in Carnegie Hall anytime soon here. So tell me about taking that and having that realization and where you go from there. There, there, must, there was a left turn where you become interested in pop music and, and then in writing, which that touches that journalism. Yes, you're very, you're very right. Well, I I loved journalism. I always did. And I think that's to my detriment as a musician, because I was always kind of torn. So maybe I didn't give it my, I wouldn't say I didn't give it my undivided attention. But 
like I see my brother and my husband, they're, that's all they do. You know, they don't want to do anything else except their music. I was always like doing 55 things. So, um, but I went to LA and I got, uh, I went to USC to get a master's in communication. And I thought there must be a way, right, that I can mix communications and music I, I know music maybe I can be a music supervisor I didn't know what I could be you knew that there were these two things that were of interest to you and then I very luckily got a job at the LA Times that I had no reason of to get I was gonna say a kid right out of school getting a job at the LA Times you you won the lottery I won the lottery yeah I won the lottery and uh and the reason I got that job was because they were launching a Spanish language section this is years ago, called Nuestro Tiempo. They were ahead of their time. When I got to the LA Times, I thought, okay, I'm going to pitch um, classical music stories to the music editor. And But they had a classical music writer. There were two, actually. Oh, my God. You're t- taking <laughs> us way two. back, folks. And they were really good. And so I thought, I'm not going to get this gig. You know, there's two people that have it already, and they're good at it. What they didn't have was a Latin writer. And L.A. was still a Latin city, but the music barely got covered. But I remember I pitched them a concert review of Luis Miguel. (laughs) And they responded how to that? They they were always, I back then, this is many years ago, but the L.A. Times, and I hope it's still this way, they were just very open to anything. So I said, oh, can I go cover? Actually, I think my first music writing was a review of Eddie Palmieri, Latin jazz. And the jazz editor was great, and he really taught me how to write reviews. Interesting. So you go to Luis Miguel, who becomes one of the biggest stars Mm -hmm. in in Latin music, uh, and really crossing over too, but... What was that experience like for you? Was the first time doing something that, I mean, set the scene for me a little bit. Huge audience? It was at Universal Amphitheater at that time. It's not called that anymore. I forget what it's called now. Um, Yeah, huge audience. And then, and that was very eye-opening for me because you are in Los Angeles uh, and it's a city that's very Mexican, but still Latin culture is not as much a part of it as my as in Miami and but you go to this Universal Amphitheater which I think sat like 8,000 people it's packed everybody knows the songs and I'm thinking oh wow why isn't everybody writing about this this is like a revelation right and look at all these people here look and at look all at these- all these people look at what's happening and, and this is packed and everybody's singing along and of course I did know Luis Miguel you know that was an easy one and I knew of course the repertoire I mean, at that point, he was doing, um, oh, I forget the album name, but it was like all these covers of big Armando Manzanero songs. Oh, right, right, right. It was these classics. Romances. Romances. Yeah. That was maybe the, the one that everybody might remember yeah. right away. Yeah, so it was, but I thought, there's something here, and I, I can do it. I speak the language. I speak the language. I know my music, and I thought, if I know classical music, I can write about pop. Like right. really, like I know, I know what's happening. I hear it. I know the chord progressions. I can tell if something is good or bad. I can tell if there's a good melody. I I can understand the lyrics. I can do this, and so I started to do it. That was Leila Cobo. She's a journalist, novelist, and one of the world's leading authorities on Latin music for Billboard. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Leila as the annual Billboard Latin Music Week returns to Miami. <music> 
welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our fall membership drive. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's get back to our conversation with author Leila Cobo. Leila is the vice president of Billboard Latin, and she leads the annual Billboard Latin Music Week, which is happening this week in Miami. We spoke with Leila back in June. Can you talk to me about how you see that awards go from this niche thing that you mentioned, this very niche thing, into this... It's, it seems to mirror the explosion of Latin music into the into mainstream, you know, Latin, that is Spanish Spanish sung music in the mainstream. Like, talk to me about that, like where how that begins to mirror each other and where, like what were the moments where you realized something big is happening here, something beyond the, this niche product? I, to me, every moment was niche. <laughs> it was big, I mean. Um, I, I think I suffer from from taking everything super personally. Like someone the other day said, you act like you had a chip on your shoulder. I'm like, I do have a chip on my shoulder. Um, Why, why? Why do you have a chip on your shoulder? I do, because I feel that this, like it always had to be proven. I I feel like there was always something that had to be proven. Like I felt that what I saw, other people that weren't in it, weren't seeing. So how do I convince them that it's happening? So to me, it was always important. Even in the years when the industry had a decline, there were still things happening that were important. But yes, there have been peaks. Um, like when we had Daddy Yankee at the conference the first time. What was that like? That Why was, was that such a big deal? Very much because he had gasolina and reggaeton was just starting. Right. And, and Miami was the entry point for And that. Miami was the entry point. And in Puerto Rico, it was really big. And this guy debuted at number one on the mm. charts with that, with that album, Barrio Fino, on the Latin charts. And I thought, this is going to be huge. This is completely different. This doesn't sound like rap. This doesn't sound like our Latin pop either. This is going to be big. And this guy is big. And he's playing all over the world because they did all these remixes. So moments like that, to me, were very... To me, they were very obvious. I was like, this is big. Can't everybody see how big this is? This is big. Right. Um, <laughs> so so there, were, there were a lot of moments like that. Having him at the conference and having this guy talk about reggaeton, which was very new to us back then, to everybody, mm-hmm. and what it was, and having him be the author of the song, I think was very, I think it opened a big door. Right. There's always kind of like peaks on the chart, and right? And that's yeah. like one of those... One of those peaks where it moves, where it moves uh, things further, so it makes the, the threshold much higher. Then, or people's acceptance become it just becomes part of infusing of, of what people accept as like the music that they hear on the radio. Yes, right. and then other moments like I remember one year I had Jenny Rivera, the year she died actually. Oh wow! And um, and she was phenomenal, and that was also I think a really important moment because Mexican music at that point was still seen as you know, a lot of people looked down on it. It wasn't quite mainstreamed, even though it was massive in the States. It was the top-selling genre in the States of Latin music. But it wasn't really present outside of the West Coast. And she came and she was such an assertive, bold person. So having these personalities really, I think, changes your perception of the music and the movement because you realize that it's not just a single or a hit on the chart. There's all this story behind it, and there's all these really impressive people behind it. A Ricky Martin, this man is tireless. 
So it's not just that somebody put in a lot of money into making a hit single, it's that you have a whole identity behind it and people that feel a big commitment to what they're doing. Right, it, feel, it feels very authentic where it wasn't yes. this one thing created to be a hit. Exactly. It was like, this guy is a star. This yes. woman is a is a star. And and we get to a point now where like, you know, we were talking about Bad Bunny where he, people have tried to convince him, make music in English. He obviously speaks English, <laughs> but he's like, I don't need to do that. I don't want to be forced to do that. I can be huge doing what I want to do. And yes, how interesting is that, right? It used to be, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. I thought that forever we would have to do music in English because it's kind of the global language and now people really don't care. I'm not saying there's 55 bad bunnies around. I think he's a very unique artist. It's not like you can replicate that. But there's certainly more of that happening. Right now on the charts, the big artist right now is this Mexican kid called Peso Pluma. I don't know if you've heard about Peso Pluma. I have not. Tell me. <laughs> he's 23 years old. He's very tall and thin. Um, and that's why he's called Peso Pluma. Well, that's his nickname. But he does he does Featherweight, corridos, featherweight, featherweight. For, the, for the English speakers yeah. in the crowd. Peso Pluma. And he does... Um, regional Mexican music. He does corridos tumbaos and I just saw him play last weekend at the FLA Arena in Sunrise and it was sold out. Wow. Well, that that also reminds me of um, the recent like Grammy Awards. Everybody thought Bad Bunny was going to win you know, that album of the year and it went to Harry Styles. Yes. And I guess if you look at the numbers, right? Like the numbers supported Bad And that became kind of like, it, it got me thinking a lot about what is the role of calling saying of having a Latin awards thing when a guy is capable of just, you know, winning the whole thing? You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that about this, this idea of, of um, if a guy is big enough to where his, you know, the numbers support, mm-hmm. you know, it being the best record around, um, have we arrived, I guess, you know? We may have, but we didn't before. And, and mind you, I've always been a, big opponent of that, of, of kind of the segregation of genres, language, of saying, oh, it's Latin, so it needs to have its little, its little Latin corner over mm-hmm. there, and that's where you stay. I was never for that, which is why I wanted always to work in English, for example, because I thought, okay, I want to write about this music in English so everybody reads it. Of course, when I started, there weren't that many media outlets in Spanish so it's not like I I really could work so much in Spanish but so I do think that it's really important that the music or whatever it is be recognized the recognition is is measurable to its rec, uh, whatever to its merit right so after seeing your career in this what is it like for you when you go to a, sta- a stadium in some place that's you know very central very American and people are singing Bad Bunny in Spanish, you know, with with like with their their American accent, you know. It's very exciting. It's very very exciting. You look around and you're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe this." It's music is wonderful. I I hate well music is wonderful. What a dumb thing to say. Of course it's wonderful. <laughs> but uh I mean music is wonderful in the sense that it really really it doesn't discriminate in that way. I, I get into a lot of conversations with people who tell me things like, well, Rosalia shouldn't be in the Latin Grammys because she's not Latin. She's a Spaniard. 
or they write and they say, why is Rosalia on the Latin charts? She's from Spain. Don't you know the difference? I'm like, of course I know the difference. But we're not segregating by country here. Like if we did that, what would we be? Like music doesn't behave like that. Music is, music flows. Music is in the air and it just touches whatever it goes and people pick things and they take things and they they incorporate things and that's what makes it beautiful I think the moment you start to say this is for me and this is for you and you can't touch it and you can't listen to this you can only listen to that that kills creativity that's not what it's about and musicians don't make music like that right they make music for they make whatever they feel and if maybe what they feel at that moment incorporates something completely alien that's fine and then people can choose to listen or not that was Leila Cobo. She's the vice president of Billboard Latin, and she leads the annual Billboard Latin Music Week, which returns to Miami. And that's Sundown for Wednesday, October 4th. Leslie Obaya Atkinson is our lead producer, Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Engineering our board is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, poet Osimer McCoy. She tells us about her work that focuses on bridging the black and indigenous communities in Everglades National Park. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. <laughs>